chapter 2, and I'll be reading verses 1 to 7 as we continue in our series in the book of Revelation, looking at the seven letters to the churches from Jesus. Now, we're calling this series, uh, The Seven, A Word to God's Churches Then and Now. And so, we are in this message to the church in Ephesus, Revelation chapter 2. Verses 1 to 7, please hear now the reading of God's holy word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, now as we turn our attention to your word, open our ears and open our hearts to receive You say here in verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Oh God, would you let us hear what you are speaking to us today? And as we hear and as we receive in thanksgiving, instruct us and encourage us. Cut us in order to heal us, to suture us, to mend us and put us back together. Oh God, we need you in this hour for we are handling the things of God. And so be with us so that we would hear your voice clearly. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13 a wonderful passage on love that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, the great love passage. But although it's often read at weddings, did you know that it's in its original context that that chapter is actually a rebuke against the church? The great chapter on love is a rebuke against God's church. In fact, if you go to 1 Corinthians 13, right before it talks about love being patient and kind, this is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. He writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul's message is very clear here. Without love... A church and a Christian are nothing and gain nothing. Such is the central place of love in the Christian life, in the life of God's people. It needs to define, it needs to shape, it needs to motivate all that we do for God and for one another. Now I bring that up because as we look at today's passage, this first letter 
to the churches that Jesus addresses in Ephesus, he exhorts them to love. But here's the thing. This message, this exhortation to love is not only a message to the church in Corinth. It's not only a message to the church in Ephesus. It's a message to us here in Cornerstone. It's a message to all of God's churches and all of God's people. The message to love. As we consider this passage in Revelation 2 verses 1 to 7, I want to think through with you, work through with you this gospel truth. Gospel-centered disciples and gospel-centered churches set their hands, heads, hearts, and hopes on Christ. Let me say that again. Gospel-centered churches and gospel-centered disciples set their hands, their heads, their hearts, and their hopes on Christ. And so as we look at this passage, I want to look under with uh, three headings for us, three sort of uh, three-point outline. And they are simple. They are the commendations, the challenge, and the conqueror's reward. So first consider with me the commendations, the commendations of the church. Verse 1 begins in this way. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. So Jesus is giving a message to the angels or a messenger to give to those in Ephesus. Now we need to know a little bit about Ephesus. Ephesus was a major city known for its influence, its commerce, and its great art. But Ephesus was also a very, very pagan city. They were probably most known for a temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis. In fact, this temple was so big and so extravagant, it was considered one of the great wonders of the world at the time. Now, Apostle Paul planted the church in Ephesus on one of his missionary journeys. And in the book of Acts, we have this moving account of Paul needing to leave Ephesus after spending three years there. And people are in tears and they're crying and they're hugging and they're kissing because he needs to move on with his missionary work. Also, we see Ephesus pop up when Paul writes a letter later on to the church in Ephesus in the New Testament, the book of Ephesians. And we also see that Paul's protege, his child in the faith, Timothy, is a pastor in Ephesus. And so when Paul writes First and Second Timothy, he is addressing Timothy and how to deal with the issues in the Ephesian church. And so the church in Ephesus is a very important city. It's a very important place because the church in Ephesus is not a new church plant. The church in Ephesus would have been considered uh, one of the old churches. The Christians there were second generation Christians. And this is important because as the gospel is spreading throughout Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, as the gospel is spreading, Ephesus is a, an important missionary hub. So through Ephesus, a lot of church plants would have been sprouting up all over the area. And so Jesus writes or says to this church, you guys are faithful. He commends them for their faithfulness in two areas. The first area is their duty. The second area is their doctrine. So duty and doctrine. So first, let's consider the commendation to their duty. Look at verse 2. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. What is he saying there? He's saying to the Christians in Ephesus, I know how you are working hard for the kingdom. I know how you are engaging in hard labor. That's what the word toil means. I know, Christians, that you are working with your hands, that your hands are being repurposed to serve Christ diligently. You see, as 
the Christians in Ephesus began understanding the gospel, one thing that changed was this. They began to start laboring hard for Jesus. Think about this. As they got the gospel, they didn't become lazy for Jesus but they began laboring for Jesus. They began working to build his kingdom, not to advance their own agendas, not to secure their own comforts and make a name for themselves, but to work for Jesus. And so actually when Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, do you know what he says? He says, for grace you have, by grace you have been saved, right? The gospel, you have been saved by God's grace. Now what? Realize that you are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That when the gospel came to the believers in Ephesus, that it repurposed their hands, not to serve themselves, but begin to labor for Christ. I think this is important for us to begin to understand. If the gospel comes into our lives, one thing that it does is that it gets us to start working for Jesus. Ultimately, listen, we know that our faith works. You know how? Our faith leads to works. How do we know that our faith works? Our faith leads to works. You see, those who say, no, 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 you don't understand. The gospel is not about working for Jesus. It's about receiving his work for us. No, no, you're misunderstanding. We've been set free by the gospel not to labor for ourselves, but now to labor for Christ. We now have the freedom, a freedom which we once did not have before. Let me illustrate in this way. Last week, um, a friend of mine was playing football, and he fell, and he broke his hand. And uh, I had dinner with him, and it was poor, poor fellow. He couldn't open a bottle of water because he had to splint on. He couldn't even tear a slice of pizza off. And he had this, um, this splint on, and uh, just this past week, he went to the doctor's. He got hand surgery. Now he has a cast on. And I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about this passage, and I realized that, you know, for someone, if you've ever broken your hand and you have a cast on, that hand is useless. You can't do anything with it for months. But once that cast comes off, once your hand is finally restored, do you continue to not use it? Do you continue to sit on your hand? No, now that your hand is finally free with this newfound freedom, you do as much with it as you can. You open up all the jars you couldn't before. You scratch all the itches that you couldn't before. You give all the high fives you couldn't before. Why? Because now your hand is free. And in the same way, in our sin, we were completely unable to do anything for God. Sin was a cast on us. It prevented us from serving him, from laboring for him. But in the gospel, Jesus Christ breaks this cast of sin. He sets our hands free. And now what do we do with our hands? Do we sit on it? No, we engage it in the work for Jesus. You see, Jesus didn't speak to the church and say, I know your toil and your labor. Stop being legalistic. You don't understand the gospel. He doesn't say, why are you working so hard for me? I don't think you understand grace. No, not at all. Instead, he commends the believers because they have proof that their faith works by working through faith. The gospel doesn't motivate laziness. It motivates labor for Jesus. The gospel transforms our hands to labor for him. The second thing that we see Jesus commending the Ephesian Christians for is their doctrine. Now look with me at verse 2. 
After he says, I know your works are toiling, and your patient endurance, he says this, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And then in verse 6, he says, yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we're going to talk about this group in a few weeks when they come back up. But here's what I want you to notice for now, that Jesus commends the church for not wavering in their doctrine, for holding fast to the gospel. They're not letting the gospel be watered down. These false teachers came into the church. They claimed themselves to be apostles. They were teaching, but the Ephesian Christians knew the gospel well enough. They had devoted themselves to study the gospel that they heard that and said, no, 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 no. I think you're wrong. Even though these guys are saying, I'm an apostle, I'm a pastor, look at my uh, ordination certificate. They knew enough that they heard and said, no, that gospel that you're preaching is incorrect. These Christians, you see, they were not only saved by the gospel, but they were trained in the gospel so that they were able to spot corruption in what they were hearing. They were all able to hold fast to the truth. And what you begin to see is this. The gospel doesn't just change your hands so you labor for Christ. The gospel begins to inform your heads so that you learn about Christ. Now, the church in Ephesus was in a unique position. Consider the pastoral staff, their church planter, their founding pastor, Apostle Paul, three years. Their second pastor, Pastor Tim. Oh, you guys had a Pastor Tim once. <laughs> pastor Timothy. Paul's child in the faith, whom Paul loved so much that he even wrote a couple letters to. You know who else was the pastor in Ephesus? Apostle John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John in the book of Revelation. He also pastored in Ephesus. Now consider this pastoral staff. This is, a, this is quite a team. You guys get me. I mean, sorry. But nonetheless, the church then and the church now, what we have in common is that we have the word of God. We have the spirit of God and we have the word of God. And so the love for the gospel, concern, love and knowing the gospel equals concern for the gospel. To know, to learn the right things. Because when you get the gospel, when it finally clicks in your life, you understand that it's not just a power for salvation, but it's a power for sanctification. And then you begin realizing this, man, if I get Jesus wrong, if I, get, if I misunderstand Jesus, if I misunderstand what he's done, I not only miss the gospel, you know what I miss? I miss eternity. To get the gospel wrong, to get Jesus wrong, means you are missing the foreverness of the gospel. And so those who say, well, I just want to love Jesus. In the Christian life, there's no place for theology. Or if there is a place, it's just a, there's just a little place for theology. No, no, no. Those people simply want to make a Jesus in their own image so that they can live as they please. But commitment to the gospel leads to vigilance and learning and greater concern for the purity and truth of this saving message. Do you remember as a kid going to the doctors? I don't know about, the, about your parents, but mine weren't so good at English, and they would hand the form, and you have to write all the, you know, your, your uh, medical conditions and, and everything, and my parents would look at it and give it to me, and I would look at it and just go, oh, no, 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 I, and I would turn it in. 
And most like, you know, I was a kid. I didn't really have any illnesses. I was fine. But, but as you get older, I find myself being more and more concerned over that paper. You know, I'm going on this vision trip in, in next week, actually. And so this past week, I was getting my hepatitis A and B shots. And I go to, I go to Rite Aid, and they give me the form. And she says, you know, fill this up and come back. And 30 minutes later, I'm still sweating over the questions. I'm getting nervous. I want to make sure that I'm answering this correctly. Why? Because I don't want the shot that she gives me to somehow, you know, mess me up, kill me. I don't, want, I don't want to have an allergic reaction to anything. And so I start worrying, you know, is there anything you need to report to the doctor? And I'm like, I sweat a lot when I preach. Do I write that down? I mean, what do I, why? Because you begin to get worried and, and scared that, oh, if, if, if I'm giving this thing and it's not compatible or, you know, I have a health issue, I, I don't want it to lead to something severe. Well, if we exercise concern in that way, how much more do we exhibit care and concern about knowing the gospel? Because the ramifications of the gospel, getting something wrong in the gospel, is eternal. Christians who are saved by Jesus, believe in the gospel, should be committed to learning about the gospel. You should be committed to taking your discipleship seriously. We who are fans of Jesus, so to speak, do we actually know about Jesus? You know, it's amazing that I, can, I, I went to a concert uh, last year, a band that I would consider one of my favorite bands, um, yet I felt like a, a fraud because when the music came on, everyone's singing the lyrics, I, I didn't know them. You know, just, and then the chorus comes on and I'm singing the chorus and then I hush back again. And I realized these guys, they know every lyric to every single song. When I came here to Philadelphia and I met Philadelphia Eagles fans, they know all the names. They know all the numbers. They know not only about the sports team, not only about the strategies of the teams, but they know about college football, and they know about the management and the, and, and the cap space and the contract. They know so much. They're fans of football, fans of music. But for us followers of Jesus Christ, disciples, when someone asks you a question, what does it mean for Jesus to be both human and man, or human and God? And we go, well, um, oh, um, and we can't give a response. When you get the gospel, when it begins to make sense in your life, you become concerned. You want to learn about Jesus. You want to be able to articulate your faith. So in summary, what Jesus commends in the church is two things. Their faithfulness to duty and to doctrine. Their commitment to Jesus in their hands and in their heads. They're laboring for Jesus and they're learning for Jesus. And there's a lot for us to chew on here Uh, But I'll simply conclude this point in this way. Do you know, do you believe that Jesus is pleased when you labor diligently for him? Not working for your salvation, but working out your salvation. And also, do you believe that Jesus is pleased when you learn deeply about him? When you get to know him, when you know what he's like, you know what he's revealed in his scriptures, you know all the facets of what he's done for you. So how do you grow as a gospel-centered disciple? And how do we grow as a gospel-centered church? We commit our hands and our heads firmly on Christ. Secondly, let's talk about the challenge of the church. Because as all the good things we read about here that the church in Ephesus did, Jesus still challenges them for something that they're lacking in. Read verse 4 with me. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You've abandoned, you've forsaken, you've left behind that first love that you had for me. You once had a love, it was a consuming fire, but it's been reduced to ashes and is nearly extinguished. 
But you know what's interesting? When Jesus says you've abandoned the love you had at first, that meant at one point they had a good grasp of this love. The church of Ephesus at one point, they experienced the great measure of Christ's love for them. And they had a great measure of love for Christ. Now, if you go back to the letter of Ephesians, Paul had prayed there. And this makes sense why they had such great love. Paul had prayed in chapter 3 that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul had prayed that for the Ephesian Christians. So they had this great love, this great zeal. And Jesus is saying, you've, you've lost that. That love you had at first, you lost it. But what kind of love is Jesus talking about? It's not a generic kind of love. It's a specific kind of love. And the clue comes in as you continue reading Ephesians and you get to chapter 5. Because in Ephesians chapter 5, here's what Paul writes. He says, husbands, this is, pay attention, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And the way that Paul talks about the love that Jesus has for the church and the church is supposed to have for Jesus, he uses this metaphor, marriage. You are the bride of Christ. Now, the church, God's people being the bride of Christ, isn't a foreign concept. It's actually a very primary metaphor that the Bible uses all throughout the Old and New Testament. Now, sometimes, if admittedly, some of the guys hear that and they begin to feel a little uncomfortable with it. If you say, men, husbands, you are the bride of Christ. And they say, oh, that's, I, I don't feel so comfortable with that. Well, get comfortable with that. You know, women are called the sons of God. Now, why are they called the sons of God? It's to, it's to help them understand the benefits and the responsibilities as they, as they have in their adoption in Christ. In the same way, men, why are you called the bride of Christ? For you to understand the benefits and the responsibility you have now in this marriage relationship to Jesus. So as the bride of Christ, you and I, the church, are to love Jesus with a spousal love. Romantic love, not bedroom or not platonic love, not friend love, not Christian labor, uh, neighbor love, but groom and bride love, husband and wife love, not husband and wife after 40 years of marriage love, but honeymoon love, newlywed love. Now, I understand if this makes some of you feel uncomfortable. Maybe you've never thought about it this way, but you have to know the Bible certainly teaches it this way without shame. In fact, the whole, there's a whole book in the Old Testament called Song of Songs, which teaches us that the love between Jesus and the church, and this is really important, the love between Jesus and the church is a consummating love. It is a bedroom love. It is an under-the-covers love. Is that too bold? Is that too awkward? Do you squirm a little bit? What? That, really? That kind of love? It is a wait-till-your-kids-go-to-sleep kind of love. 
Now that makes us feel uncomfortable, and I hope it does, but the Bible is saying to you, the love Jesus has for the church is two lovers coming together. And so when Jesus charges the church in Ephesus to say, you've abandoned the love, he's not saying, you've abandoned warm feelings for me. He's saying you've abandoned that intense, passionate desire and affection. That's what you've neglected. That's what you've left behind. In fact, in the Old Testament, whenever, Jesus, whenever God spoke to Israel, he would send the prophet. And when he was confronting Israel with abandoning love, you know what he called it? Adultery. They used that word, whoredom. Hosea says, you're in bed with another. You are sleeping around. You are cheating. So Jesus says, I have this against you. That is strong language. He's saying, this is not okay. Your lack of love is a crack in the foundation that will bring this whole thing down. Your lack of love is like, your love, love is like that Jenga piece that if you take it out, everything comes crashing down. So he says, you don't love me like you once did, and you're not giving me your heart. We have a problem here. Now think about this with me. Most married couples, and you've probably said it yourself, when you're explaining and talking about love, or you're understanding your own uh, marriage love, you realize this, that the love you had in the honeymoon phase, right, it eventually changes and it morphs and it becomes something else. Now how many of you maintain that honeymoon love? None of you. But you don't think that's a bad thing. Why? Because you begin to understand this, right? Love is not just a feeling. Love is not just an emotion. Love is commitment. Love matures. And so when I say, oh, I don't, you know, we don't have the love that we had back then, we say that's a good thing. Why? Because it's matured. It's about commitment and devotion and sacrifice. Yesterday I had dinner with the deacons and the elders, and they said, you know, marriage is about compromise. Well, here's what's very interesting. We would say that love changes and it moves from this kind of raw emotion into commitment and sacrifice. But when Jesus says, you have abandoned your first love, you have abandoned the love at you first, he's assuming that we need to maintain that initial intense romantic on fire. Your heart is fluttering. Your, butterfly get, your stomach gets butterflies whenever he walks in the room kind of love. Jesus is saying, he's actually accusing us. When I walk in the room, how can your eyes don't light up anymore? He's not satisfied if you say, well, you know, Jesus, this isn't a little unreasonable for you to love that way. I mean, haven't we moved beyond it? Now I, now I, I, don't, I don't love you like I did before, but now don't you, I'm laboring for you. I'm learning about you. You know, Jesus, isn't that enough? And what he's saying is, I don't just want your hands. I don't just want your heads. I want your heart. Love is what Jesus is after. You know why? Because Jesus came after you with love. So if you're doing a lot for Jesus, you're, you know a lot about him, but you're not in love with him, this is a dangerous place to be. You know why? Because in our minds, we substitute love for Jesus with those things. Now, I don't know where you guys, everyone is spiritually. Maybe you once had burning desire and zeal for Christ, but life went by. Responsibilities increased. Children grew up. And so you stopped working to kindle that flame and you stopped working to fan it into a consuming fire. And so instead you've let it grow a little cold. It's been reduced to embers. And Jesus is saying that's not okay. 
You need to know that that's not okay. Friends, imagine that your spouse came home one day and just said to you matter-of-factly, listen, I don't love you, but don't worry. I'll still live at home. I'll still help pay the bills. I'll still help raise the kids. But just know when I do this, then my heart is not with you. Would that ever be okay? Would that not crush you? Would that not devastate you? Yet, how many of us are functionally living with Jesus like that? Jesus, I'll go to church. I'll serve. I'll do what I need to. But you want my heart? (laughs) Jesus is not interested in some kind of friendly efficient, the practical, living accommodation with you. He doesn't want that. He wants your heart. He wants your love. Let me illustrate it in another way. Every summer, we play in the softball tournament. And whenever a new person comes and plays, the the first rule you have to explain is this. No matter what, you have to step on the basis. You have to step on the basis so that if you uh, somehow get walked and you're on first and you go to third, if you don't hit second base, they can tag you out. You have to hit first base. It doesn't matter. You can hit the ball out of the park and run all the way around and stomp on home, home plate. But if you didn't touch first base, none of it matters. None of it counts. You miss first, you miss everything. And this is what Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. If you miss love, you can hit prophecy, tongues. You can have faith to move mountains. You can give up your body and have it burned in martyrdom for the sake of Jesus. You can have encyclopedic knowledge of Jesus. But if you have not love, you missed everything. What is Jesus saying here to the church in Ephesus? You guys are laboring hard. You are working hard. You know your stuff. You're battling with false teachers and you're calling them out. But that's not enough. Because if you miss love for me, you've missed everything. So the question is, who has your heart? What has your heart? Is it committed to your bridegroom or is it committed to a spiritual idol? The pulse of your walk with Jesus is measured in your love for him. And let me also say this, because being here almost a year now, I've I've come to realize that there are some of you who are doing great in your spiritual walk. You love Jesus. You haven't abandoned your first love. I'm excited for you. I praise God for you. But the message still applies to you. For some who have abandoned, it applies to us as a challenge. But for others of us who are loving Jesus, it applies to you as a warning. Beware of what is to come, what may be beyond the corner. But praise be to God that we are not left in the dark. Jesus accuses us. He shows us what's wrong in our heart, and then he gives us a solution. Look with me at verse 5. What does he say? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Jesus, this is, this is the basis for, this is the biblical rationale for three-point sermons. Remember, repent, redo, do it again. That was a joke, by the way. It's not an actual, actual biblical basis for three-point sermons. But, but simply put, Jesus tells us to do three things. Your heart, your heart is cold. Your heart is far away from Jesus. Remember, repent, redo. First, remember. Now, remember is actually one of the most common uh, commands in the Bible. He's saying, remember where you used to be. 
Remember when it was so good to spend time with me. Remember that you did, when you didn't look at the clock when you were in prayer and doing your devotion. Remember the great passion you had when your heart was just so zealous and you were ready to give up everything because you knew I gave up, I gave up everything for you. Remember when you had this willingness to forsake the world and pick up your cross. Remember, remember the sweat and tears and fighting against the sin and the sweet, sweet sons of God's spirit empowering you to resist temptation. Remember Remember your first love. Open up that old photo album. You may not think you're nostalgic. You may think, well, I'm not that type of person. Jesus is saying, remember. Open up your wedding photo album. Look through it. Remember. Then he says, repent. Because there are things that are blocking you, that are blurring your vision from seeing God clearly. There is an idol that is competing in your heart for the affections of your heart. There is something that's competing for the hours on your schedule. There is something that's competing for the energy in your daily life that you're too tired when you're too tired to spend time with him. Repent. What distractions are coming before him? What seems more important to you than your Savior? Jesus is saying, it's not me who's changed. What does repent mean? Repent is change. Turn around. Why? Because Jesus' love for you hasn't grown cold. It's you. You've drifted. You've gone cold. So repent. Confess. Acknowledge what you've abandoned and come back to it. And third, he says, redo. Do it again. Repeat. Whatever you did in the past, do it again. When was that time that you, that you were on fire for the Lord? Did you wake up extra early in the mornings? Did you carve out that, that time in, in lunch when, when, you were, when now you were watching Netflix? When before you would, you would pray, you, you, would, you would read the word that time in the evening? Did you once set apart days of fasting and, and fight to spend that time with Jesus? Did you once listen to Christian music in the morning to, to get your mind ready to start thinking about God? Did you once spend time with spiritually minded friends who would energize you, encourage you, and pray for you? Did you once come out to church very faithfully and serve very diligently? Did you once boldly profess your faith and share your faith when it was uncomfortable? Whatever these things were, do it again. Redo it. Repeat it. This is what Jesus is saying. He's diagnosing the problem and he's giving you the solution to a cold heart and a fading love. Remember me. Remember. Repent and redo. And you know the severity of what Jesus is saying, the seriousness when in verse 5 he says, if not... If you don't, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I will remove my presence from you. I will withdraw from you. If you continue to turn, you continue to abandon a pursuit of love for me, I will remove my presence from you. So he beckons you, friends, to come to him. A gospel-centered disciple, a gospel-centered church is one that sets their hearts on Jesus and loves him with everything they have. But there is an issue, isn't there? Because if Jesus is simply motivating you through fear, you will never love him truly. 
If Jesus simply comes to you and says, love me, and you say, well, why? And he says, if you don't, I'm going to go away. Then you may love him, but you will not love him with a heart that longs to. You will love him with the fear of the consequences. So Jesus gives to us, and this is our third point, the conqueror's reward. The conqueror's reward. How does fear and love work when it comes to Jesus? Are we to fear him? Are we to love him? Some of you may be familiar with this comedy show where a certain office manager is asked, by, uh, is asked in an interview, do you want your employees to love you or to fear you? And he says, both. It's easy. Or it's easy, both. I want, to, I want them to be afraid of how much they love me. Well, that's not how it works with Jesus, is it? Jesus does not work in this way. What is he saying? Because if you notice, this particular letter to the church in Ephesus ends not on a note of fear, but on a note of promise. In fact, every single one of Jesus' letters ends exactly the same way, with a promise to those who conquer. Now, look with me at verse 7. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who conquers, I will grant you access to eat of the tree of life. Now, the one who conquers, who is the one who conquers? Now, we tend to think the one who conquers is the one who, who, gets, the, who gets the victory himself, who gets the win herself. But the one who conquers is not that kind of person. The one who conquers is one who is faithful to Christ and therefore shares in his conquest. What do I mean by that? In Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, this is how Jesus is identified. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Who is the conqueror? Jesus is the conqueror. And therefore, those who identify with Jesus, who share in his victory, they too become conquerors in and through him. And Jesus is promising to the church in Ephesus that the conqueror's reward is to eat of the tree of life. To what does that promise refer? Now, when you hear the tree of life, it should take your mind back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve fellowshiped with God, lived with God in perfect harmony. It was indeed the paradise of God. No sin had entered. But if you remember that tragic story, Adam and Eve, in their sin and their rebellion, disobey God. They eat of a fruit that they are commanded not to. And therefore, not only Adam and Eve, but all of humanity, the whole entire human race since, is what? Is banished, is kicked out, is exiled from this very garden. They are cut off from access to the tree of life. And in their banishment, in their exile, God in Genesis chapter 3 says this. He writes, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So now man cannot enter into the garden, into the paradise of God. Man cannot have access to the tree of life unless he first confronts the cherubim with the flaming sword of judgment. So when Jesus offers to those who conquer to eat of the tree of life, how in the world can any of us access the garden? And the answer, of course, is only through the one who conquers. Jesus Christ himself, who enters the garden, but he doesn't stroll on in. He doesn't just come in and give a nod to the cherubim, and and the cherubim opens up the door for him. No, Jesus Christ himself fell under the flaming sword of the cherubim's judgment. 
Jesus gives us access to the tree of life. How? Because he was crucified on the tree of death. And through what he has done, being struck down by the sword of judgment, the judgment that you and I deserved, we now have access to enter into the paradise of God. This is what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so through his death and resurrection, he is the conqueror. And he promises the reward of eternal life to all of us who would look to him in faith. And looking to him in faith, we share in his conquest. You see, this is the promise. This is the hope that Jesus offers to us. The hope of living with him in eternity. Why love him above all things? Why cultivate a love relationship with Jesus? It's not because of fear. But it's in the promised hope of entering heaven. And you know how heaven is described in Revelation? It's a wedding feast, a marriage feast between the bridegroom and us, the church. You see, it's the gospel that empowers the exhortation to love. Love Jesus. Don't abandon that first love. Love him with all of your how, how, how. The gospel. The hope that he offers to us. As I end, I just want to summarize everything I've said in, in hopefully a, in a helpful way. There are four marks, and we've already, you've already heard this, but I'm just going to summarize it. There are four marks, four things in this letter that show what a gospel-centered disciple and a gospel-centered church looks like. And I hope that as you think through them, that you will begin to also evaluate and reflect on your own spiritual life. First, your hands seek to labor for Jesus. Your hands seek to labor for Jesus. You're not seeking to make a name for yourself, to build your own career, to, it, to make your 401k bigger, to get more and more, but you labor for Jesus. And so ask yourself, are you proving your faith works by working through faith? Second, your head and mind are engaged to learn about Jesus. Your head and mind are engaged to learn about Jesus. You are seeking to grow in the knowledge of the gospel. So ask yourself this reflection question. Am I grounded in God's word? And am I growing in head knowledge of who Jesus is and what he came to do? Am I growing in head knowledge of who Jesus is and what he came to do? Third, your heart beats with romantic spousal love for Jesus. And when it doesn't, you remember, you repent, you redo it again and again and again. So ask yourself this question. Are you captivated by consuming love for Jesus? Or are you experiencing a cold and distant formality with him? And fourth, your hope is set on Jesus and the promise of living with him in the paradise of God. So ask yourself this, am I placing my hope in eternal things or on earthly things? As we learn from God's message to the church in Ephesus there and then, may we as his people here and now receive what he has instructed us. Driven by the gospel, as conquerors in Christ, let us begin in hands 
and in heads and in our hearts and with our hopes be setting them on Christ and we will grow. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you love your church imperfect as she is, full of warts and blemishes, faults and wrinkles and spots. Yet you are committed to her in great love for her, a spousal love, a romantic love, a song of songs kind of love. But we confess, God, the many ways in which our hearts have forgotten that and have grown cold. Oh, Spirit, would you come and would you rekindle that love, that flame? Help us to turn again to Jesus, the one who loves us as a perfect husband, the one who serves us as a perfect bridegroom, the one who longs after us as a perfect lover, that in seeing him and all he's done for us and taking the judgment sword to give us access to eat of the tree of life and spend eternity with him, I pray that our hearts would begin to beat and long for him. He has conquered. He has conquered, and so in him we share as conquerors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.